Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and starting reading at verse 1. This is God's word. Who is like a wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the sternness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's commandments for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful, and a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Because for every matter there is a time and judgment. Though the great misery of man increases greatly. For he does not know what will happen. So who can tell him when it will occur? No one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. And no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. All this I have seen. And applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness. And they were forgotten in the city where they had done so done. This also is vanity because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet surely I know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity which occurs on earth, that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So I commanded enjoyment because a man has nothing better to do under the sun than to eat, drink and be merry. For this will remain with him in his labour all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labours to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, Though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Amen. We thank God for this reading from his truth. We're going to pray now and ask for God's help to understand it together. Let's pray. Our gods, we thank you for your word. And we long to understand it both personally and as a community here in the church, we long to understand your scriptures. 
We pray today, O God, that you would teach us. Teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit to understand your word and to apply it in our lives. Most of all, O God, may your word today make Jesus seem excellent to us. May Christ be exalted in our hearing. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. There are some problems that we have in life which we can solve with our heads. Uh, We need to engage our brains if we want to solve a Rubik's Cube, uh, for example, or some quadratic equations. Um, I don't know how you spend your spare time, but I know for me that's what I'm doing most of the time. Not really. Other problems in life require not so much a head approach, but a heart approach. You know, those kind of problems. Problems that are better approached over a cup of tea or coffee. Having a good chat with someone. Not necessarily trying to find the route to the day when the problem will be over, but simply... That old proverb, a problem shared is a problem halved. Talking it over. What we need really for those problems is a listening ear. A caring heart goes much further than an academic brain. But then there are some problems in life which require the head and the heart. A few weeks ago, uh, coming out of church, Joel fell. He was running down the path outside of Jarrett's Pass Church and, and he fell and he put a hole in his trousers and a fairly decent graze across his knee. Now I'm pretty convinced that cut knees are a rite of passage for any seven-year-old, so it's okay. But there was a problem that needed dealt with. He had a cut knee. Now of course I'm a man. My first thought was, let's get it cleaned up. We'll get a cloth or some damp cotton roll, that should do. Then we'll get it dried off. We'll get germline on there and stick a plaster on it. I was very much thinking with my head. All of the mums in the room are horrified by that because you know that what he needed, first of all, was a hug. He needed to be told it's going to be okay, Joel. He needed a heart response, not a head response. Now, the cut still needed to be cleaned and he still needed a plaster on it, but he also needed a hug from his mum or his dad. The head and the heart both have to come into play to solve the problem. But then there are some problems in life, some questions, some issues that we have to face, which as much as we engage our head, And as much as we engage our heart, we fail to find a solution. For those problems, we need the wisdom of God's word. In our passage today, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is once again looking into some of the big questions of life. You do have your Bibles open at Ecclesiastes 8. You can see at the start of the chapter He asks the question, who is like a wise man? He he wants once again to to delve into this issue of wisdom. Who is like a wise man? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A wise man, a wisdom, sorry, makes his face shine. 
and the sternness of his face is changed. Notice the the brightness, the, the joy that comes to someone's face whenever they have the answer to some of the great problems of life, some of the great conundrums. Wisdom is a wonderful thing. It's great to have it. We might think of biblical examples, men like Joseph. Think about the wisdom that God gave to Joseph. He was able to save many lives. He, he interpreted the king's dream and they stored up the food in preparation for a time of famine. Think about Daniel and his friends. In chapter one of Daniel, we're told they were young men in whom there was no blemish. They were good looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand. They had ability to serve in the king's palace. You see how good it is that when we receive wisdom from God. Let's not forget that the preacher of Ecclesiastes is most likely King Solomon. Solomon asked for wisdom from God and God granted that wisdom to him. Solomon is a man who is famed throughout history for his great wisdom. So much so that Jesus refers to the Queen of the South traveling from the ends of the earth to hear of Solomon's wisdom. God gave wisdom to these men and then God used that wisdom. He used it powerfully to accomplish his purposes. And so wisdom is a wonderful thing. And to be clear, the the wisdom the preacher speaks about in Ecclesiastes 8, the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of Joseph and Daniel, that is wisdom of the head and of the heart which comes from God. You see that verse 9 is an example, or, or verse 16, the preacher talks about applying his heart we know that he used his mind, but he's also using his heart. He's, he's thinking through issues, but he's also feeling through the problems that face us in life. But, and we have to deal with this, there are some issues that we cannot deal with without the wisdom of God. Our heads and our hearts cannot deal with those issues alone. We've worked through this book of Ecclesiastes and we've seen a number of issues come up. But perhaps the main one that we face maybe in conversations with non-Christians, one that's troubled people since the fall and, and one that I have to deal with quite often in pastoral visits that plagues both our hearts and our heads is the very question of Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 14. Turn to verse 14. You see the problem? There are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Then, again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. You see, do you see this problem the preacher is having? Bad things happen to good people. Why is that? And good things happen to bad people. We see this all the time, don't we? And at this point, our heads, we we can go round and round in circles on this one and we fail to come up with a suitable answer. And our hearts just 
don't understand why this is the case. And the preacher says it's, it's vanity. The head and the heart fail us at this point. There's an unsolvable riddle, an unsquareable circle. It simply leaves us asking the question, why? Why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? We need to think it through, don't we? We, we can't ignore it. It's one of those questions which we have to think about because we see it in the world we live in. We see good people suffering. People we might even think of as innocent children. Children going hungry. Children suffering abuse. And all the while their abusers seem to be the people benefiting. People who lie and cheat and steal seem to be the ones that are prospering. Why is it that good things happen to bad people while bad things happen to good people? It's a question that human beings have struggled with for thousands of years. So don't be too hopeful today that I'm going to finally come up with the answer for us. And I'm actually not sure that the Bible offers us a definitive answer, not on this side of glory, but I do think the Bible has wisdom for us. God-given wisdom so that we can think through the problem and feel through the problem. A wisdom that comes not from men, but from God. A wisdom that hits us in the head and in the heart, but even in our very souls. So what is that wisdom? Well, first of all, the Bible assures us that it's okay to ask the question. Secondly, the Bible corrects our idea of who is righteous And then finally, the Bible assures us that we won't ask this question forever. So firstly, the Bible assures us that it's okay to ask the question. I think it's really important that we notice that the Bible doesn't hide from this issue. It doesn't sugarcoat it. We've seen this before in Ecclesiastes. But in fact, the whole Bible is filled with lament to God that the wicked are prospering while the righteous suffer. It's a major theme in the Psalms. So I think we can take comfort from the fact that we're not the first generation of God's people to deal with this problem. And nor are we the first that we want to express to God that we are hurt by it, that we're frustrated by it, that it annoys us, it unsettles us. And further, God's word says there is a way to express that hurt without sinning against God. This is one reason I'm so keen on us singing the Psalms. The Psalms are a wonderful way of using God's word to call out, to cry out to God in times of deep sadness. Because the psalmist was in deep sadness quite often. It is good for sad Christians to have songs to sing to God. That's a good thing. The Psalms are full of words like Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? The wicked are prospering. And David wants to know how long is this going to last? The Bible might not give us an answer to the question. But it does give us a way of asking the question without worrying if we're blaspheming God, without worrying if we're blaspheming against his holy and divine will. This is a difficult question. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? It's a difficult question, but it's okay to ask it. It's asked in God's word, and so we have permission We have permission to use these words to cry out to God in response to the evil we see in the world and ask, God, why are the righteous suffering? Why are your people being oppressed all over this world, in Muslim countries, in communist regimes? Why is the the secularism of our own country increasing and God's people seem to be crushed by it? And all the while, the wicked are prospering. It's okay to ask that question. Secondly, though, the Bible corrects our idea of who is righteous. I think this is maybe where so many in our world make a mistake. So many make a mistake in thinking through this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? I was listening to Radio Ulster the other day, and I know I shouldn't. I know it's not good for my blood pressure, but I was listening anyway. And Thought for the Day came on in the morning. I can't remember the name of the speaker, but I can tell you what he said. There was a general tone of religiosity about his voice. But basically, the message was this. When people die and they get to the gates of heaven... Peter, standing at those gates, would not turn anyone away who had lived a good life. In fact, I think the word he used was impeccable. People who had lived an impeccable life. And he said he saw that all around him. He went on, no matter whether you're Protestant or Catholic or none, whether you're Muslim or Hindu or Jew, heaven would be filled with all of these people who had lived good lives. No one would be turned away because of what they believed, but would be accepted on the basis of how they lived. Friends, I have to tell you that this man, speaking on Radio Ulster, is most misguided. If his policy, if what he was saying was enacted, rather than being full, heaven would be empty. It would be completely and entirely empty. The Bible is clear. There is none righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if God was accepting us into heaven on the basis of our behaviour, it would be a very empty place. That means that while we can ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? We have to realise that by a biblical definition, because we are all sinners, there are no good people. Well, there was one good person. There only has been one good person ever. And indeed, 
bad things did happen to him. So asking that question, why do bad things happen to good people, leads us directly to the cross. It leads us directly to the death of Christ, our sinless saviour. It leads us to the godly one who died for the sins of the ungodly. It leads us to understand the gospel of grace. Because it leads us to realise that the reason bad things happen to good people, the reason Christ was crucified, was so that the guilty might go free. Christ died for the sins of his people. And so being righteous is not about your behaviour. Being righteous is not about your behaviour, good or bad. Being righteous is not about the things you have done or not done. Being righteous is not about your involvement or lack of involvement with the congregation here at King's Mills. Being righteous is about your relationship to Jesus. Are you trusting that his death was for your sin? Well, then you're righteous. That's the gospel. Are you able to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Well, then you will be saved. You are righteous. Have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you repented of your sin and and asked him to remove it from you so that you can receive his righteousness in its place? Well, then you are righteous. Only in and through Jesus Christ, the only good person ever to live, can we be called righteous. Friends, the wonderful news of the gospel is that heaven will not be empty but it will be filled with sinners. Sinners who have had their sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. I heard an illustration recently, and although I've heard it before, it it ties in nicely with the man speaking on Radio Ulster. If you die today, if you did die, and you were at those pearly gates and Peter was there, and he asked you the question, why should you get into heaven? Do you know how you would answer that question? The answer to that question says everything we need to know about your understanding of the gospel. In fact, we could pretty much know all we need to know by hearing the first word of your answer. If you say, I believe I should get into heaven because I lived a good life, because I was really involved in church, because I went to Sunday school when I was a child, or if you answer it with any other answer beginning with I, then you've not understood the gospel. The only way to answer that question is to begin with Jesus. Because Christ died for me. The only requirement of entry into glory is to be found righteous. To be found righteous in Christ alone. So the Bible assures us that it's okay to ask this question and it corrects our idea of who is righteous. Finally then, the Bible comforts us to know that we will not ask this question forever. The Bible assures us that on that day and in that place, we finally will have an answer to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 14. 
There are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. There are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. Why? Why is it that good things happen to bad people? Why is it that bad things happen to good people? And we've already gleaned wisdom. So why is it that the righteous, God's people, those who have trusted in Christ, why do the righteous suffer? Why does the church seem to suffer while those who ignore God, while those who spit in his face seem to prosper? Well, the preacher of Ecclesiastes has actually already sort of answered that question. If you just scan back up from verse 14 to verses 12 and 13, this is one of those places in the book which, let's face it, this book is pretty dark and depressing at times. This is one of those places where a chink of light shines through, where the clouds part and and, and wisdom from above the sun comes down from God. Verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, Yet surely I know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Friends, there will be a day of reckoning, a day when all things will be laid bare, a day when we will no longer ask our question because the wicked will face God's ultimate judgment and punishment. It might seem to us that the wicked are prospering here and now, but that's because we don't know how things will end. We don't know what end God is working towards. Only God knows the end from the beginning. And only through fearing him can we be sure that we're on the right side of judgment and wrath. Those of you who know me will be aware that I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. As nerdy as that makes me, I'm aware it makes me a bit of a nerd. But in the Lord of the Rings, there's a character called Gollum. And Gollum is a wretched and wicked being. He is a murderer, a liar and a cheat. He he killed his best friend in order to steal the one ring from him. And in a certain part of the book, the main character, Frodo, begins thinking about how it would be better for Gollum to be dead. And he begins to think about killing him himself. I want you to listen to a section from the story where Frodo is speaking with the wizard Gandalf. Frodo says, what a pity Bilbo did not stab that vile creature when he had the chance. Pity, said Gandalf. It was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy, not to strike without need. I do not feel any pity for Gollum. He deserves death. Hmm, deserves death. I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death. And some that die deserve life. Can you give that to them? Then be not too eager to deal out death in the name of justice, fearing for your own safety. Even the wise cannot see all ends. Friends, we do not know the end from the beginning. We do not know how things will work out for people. 
It's not our place to condemn the wicked to death and to hell, no matter what they've done wrong. What should we do? Well, we should pray. We should pray to God for their souls to be saved. We should pray for their repentance. We know that we deserve death. We deserve death every bit as much as the wicked. We know that but for Christ, we too would face the full wrath of God. Why do the wicked prosper? That's not a question we can answer right now. But we can say for sure on the basis of God's word that all sin will be punished. Either it has been punished already for those who are trusting in Christ or it will be punished on that final day of judgment. God's word has required us today to look deeply for wisdom. Wisdom of the heart, wisdom of the mind, and wisdom that requires us to look beyond both the heart and the mind. Wisdom that makes us turn instead to Christ. For he is the very wisdom of God. We're going to pray to him now. Let's pray together.